Okay, let's, let's pray once more. Oh God, that, that song that we sang just a minute ago, it's basically one long prayer that is a request that we behold you and that we see more clearly, that we see truly, that we see you. We all have many concerns, many um, pressures in life, many things that exhaust us, that bring us to this moment. Uh, some of us completely upside down, wondering which, which end is up. Some of us exhausted, some of us fearful, some of us um, wondering how we're going to do tomorrow. And some of us are very happy and pleased and secure and content and also wondering, why am I here? Why do I need this? Father, I pray that you would come to all of us now by your Spirit and show us Christ. Do the work that only you can do now. I'm going to speak, but I'm asking you to come and do a supernatural work in all of us. Show us yourself. Show us yourself clearly, I pray now. In Jesus' name, by his power, amen. Joy really was the superpower of the early church. Luke records this about those first believers in Acts 2. He's, he writes there, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Joy, glad and generous hearts, praising God, which is this, this ongoing characterization of the early church. And so it is no coincidence that Luke records next, and they had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Their superpower was not tongues, it was not works, miracles, that, that those were signs that showed people something supernatural was happening here, but I'm convinced their true superpower was a jolly joy. A jolly joy. Today, the church is consumed with being seeker-sensitive, with, with tailoring our worship to that, that thin band of the population that is interested in consuming a spiritual good or service. Um, but the, the thing that is winsome and that is attractive to every group, in every culture, in every generation, across all time, is a people that are really having fun, that are having a good time. The early church was so attractive because they were so authentically and overflowing just having a good time together. They were, hap they, were the, they were that happy family that the rest of the world has been looking for their whole life and had written off as an impossibility. And now all of a sudden, here it is. Here it is. So, to the point of it, the, the point, the big point today that I, I hope to draw out of the texts is this that a people that are enjoying themselves are unbeatable. A people that are enjoying themselves are unbeatable. But we need to ask ourselves, what was the engine of the early church's joy? And it was the gospel. It was the gospel, the events surrounding Jesus. Jesus who came into our darkness like one of us and who died for our sins and who was raised from the dead. But more than that, was ascended on high and took the right-hand place on the Father's throne. But we, we 
in so many respects, unlike them, we have lost that, that spiritual mojo that they had. We've lost it. We've, we've lost touch with this joy, which is dangerous, because when you look around at all the joyless movements today, the, these movements that, that are indeed movements, but that are, that are joyless and dour and, and legalistic, whether it be uh, woke movements or, or whether it be forms of Christianity that, that, that are just lifeless and, and legalistic, they are, they are the movements that are soon to dry up in their drab clothes and, and be depressed and die out. So the question today is, how did we lose this mojo, and how do we get it back? How do we get it back? These are the questions I want to explore this morning through three Scripture passages. These, these passages describe for us both what we should be about, but also the how. How do we recover this mojo of joy? So three passages and then a, a theme that runs through all of them, and then some practical applications. Um, okay, well... Why, why, why did particularly the ascension of Christ provide those early Christians so much joy? The ascension of Christ. His death, yes. His resurrection, death, yes. And, and his ascension. Well, they saw, that the reason why they were filled with such joy is that they saw this as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 10, verse 1, which some call God's favorite Bible verse because it is the verse most quoted in the New Testament. Um, and this is why Peter, just a few verses earlier in Acts 2, quotes this verse as a description about what happened with Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. The psalm is written by David, most likely as a, a coronation song for his son Solomon. But David, Peter notes, did not ascend to heaven. Now, it wasn't David, as the psalm says. Now, the, the, this psalm, up until this point, was a mystery. The Jews were wondering, who, who or what is this psalm really about? But now we see in Jesus. We, and so we, we could say that the whole New Testament, the, the, the theme, the message of the whole New Testament is this, that Psalm 110.1 has come true. It has been fulfilled. Jesus reigns. Jesus is not just... A broken death. He's not just died to forgive us of our sins. He's not just raised from the dead. He is now risen to the right hand of the Father, which means that he reigns over everything. Everything for us. He reigns for us. And God is making all of his enemies his footstool. God is, God is slowly pressing down Jesus' feet on top of all his enemies until they literally become his footstool. This, and this was, in fact, this psalm, Psalm 110, I'm convinced, was the truth that sustained Jesus throughout all of his trials and terrors and betrayals and pain and death with joy, with joy. The, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 2 says this, that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. For the joy set before him. What joy? It was the promise in Hebrews 12, 2, that Psalm 110.1 would be fulfilled, that he would soon be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And thus, the early church could see that in Jesus, this psalm was fulfilled, and so in it, they too experienced the greatest joy, the greatest joy that there is no 
part of my life. There's no square inch of existence over which Jesus does not say mine and over which Jesus does not reign with a perfect power and a perfect love for his people. That brings joy. That brings joy. A joy that literally drew thousands to the faith. For they knew, they knew that, the, that though, though Caesar and the Sadducees, though Rome and the Jews, though even the whole world might be against them, their Lord had overcome the world. Their Lord had overcome it all. They believed this. They believed this, and they were filled with joy, with joy in the face of what they would otherwise fear or loathe. Fear and loathing that would otherwise control them, they overcame that by their faith, their faith in what the ascension meant for them. And thus, in their eating and their drinking together and their rejoicing, they fulfilled what God's people had to be commanded to do in the Old Testament in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 8.10 The people of God have returned to Israel, but they have not returned to God yet from their Babylonian captivity. They've forgotten his word, and and now they hear it again. And when they realize how much of it they have not observed, they mourn in fear. But Nehemiah says, no, for in this word you've received grace and mercy. So go and throw a party. Eat and drink together. And not just, don't just drink any wine. Pull out the sauterne. Pull out the sweet wine, the sweet stuff. Pull that out and drink that and eat together and call the people in who can't afford to eat and drink. Bring everyone together because this day is made holy. Why is it being made holy? By God's grace coming to you. And, and, and with all the adversity, with all the adversity you're going to face, because when they came back, they were literally rebuilding their nation. They were literally rebuilding their world, much as we are going to be called to do in the coming years and decades, to rebuild a fallen civilization. They, too, were called to that. And so with all the adversity that you're going to face, you're going to need your strength for it. And what is your strength? The joy of the Lord is your strength. That is your strength. Do you believe that? And they did. They did. With all the the failures that we can read about, the Bible does not pull any punches with its own people. It shows us all the gritty negatives. And yet with all the gritty negatives of the Old Testament, the fact of the matter is is that when when Jesus walked through the temple, he was walking through a temple whose, whose rebuilding started with those people. That temple was rebuilt with joy, with the power of joy. So today, we too live under the same promise, the the, the promise of the fulfillment of Psalm 110, that God will make all the enemies of his son his footstool. So Paul puts it this way in his final words of Romans, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace, funny, funny juxtaposition here, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. (laughs) This is a remarkable verse. God is out to make peace for his people, and he will do it. He's not going to create some mamby-pamby pretend peace, you know, just with words, you know, that just gives you a feeling in your heart that you have like, you know, like for 15 minutes every week or something. No, no, no. He's, he's making peace. 
total unending peace. And this is because he will destroy the one who is at the core, the robber of all peace, Satan, the devil. And the word crush here, the word crush is the kicker. Because with this word, Paul is going back in a thread all the way through the Bible. All the way through the Bible, far back before Psalm 110, all the way back to the garden. All the way back to the garden when God promised Adam and Eve that after they fell, Genesis 3.15, God is speaking here to the serpent, to Satan, but here's the promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, enmity being to be enemies, to be at, to be at war. So God, God will create this conflict between Satan and, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's the he there? It is Eve's offspring, a singular seed. The, the word here is singular, referring to a coming offspring of Eve who would crush, who would crush the head of Satan. The, the word here for bruise is literally crush or batter. It, 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 it implies a, a, a motion whereby you, you keep pressing down. You, you keep pressing down, down, down until you injure or kill by crushing. Bruising is one way of putting it. <laughs> um, in Jesus' case, he would rise from the dead as if only his heel were crushed he will, he will literally go into eternity with scars in his hands and feet from the nails. Yes, the, the serpent will have, have bit his heel and, and crushed his heel, but Satan's head will be crushed, destroyed forever. Destroyed forever. By whom? Well, what Paul is saying here is that he, another, another fascinating part of this passage is that Paul is saying is that the church will see this. The church will see this crushing. And more than that, we won't just see it. Paul says, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Wait a second, I, I, I thought Jesus was the dragon crusher. Yes, he is. And we're his body, the church. We're his body. God will do it. God will make Jesus' enemies his footstool. But we, the church, are Christ's body. Thus, we won't do it, but God will do it through us, through his people, through the body of Christ. It is the very church who will, who will crush Satan's head, the church being Christ's body. But how do, we, how do we know that we're strong enough to beat Satan? Well, we're not. It's not us, but it's God in us. Thus, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The people who are having a good time while laying down their lives are simply unstoppable, even over Satan himself. <laughs> How do you feel about that? Like, do, do you feel yourself asking right now, like, man, I really want to believe that. <laughs> I, I really want to believe that. And the challenge of the sermon today is, you know what? Maybe you ought to. <laughs> That's what the scripture says. So, all right. So, so why though? Why is joy so much of a problem? Why, why is this so hard for us 
to believe. Let me, let me recap these truths. First, the ascension and reign of Jesus, which we live under right now, that, that is a source of joy, that we live under his sovereign, all-powerful reign right now. Number two, the, the reality of the, of the pressing down of Jesus' feet on Satan so that soon he will be crushed under our feet. That's a reality, the scripture says. And number three, that, that the completion of that work is promised to us. God promises us that's coming soon under your feet. So why is this so hard to believe? Well, we'll get to that in a second, but let me repeat. This is meant to create in us a sort of holy pirate joy. <laughs> You know, pirate-like, since, since what are we to exist for now except to rob and plunder and undermine the houses of the Lord of this age? We're pirates, holy pirates. And our Lord, our Lord is totally strong enough and wise enough to do it. Totally strong enough. We're not, but who cares? He is. Our captain is. We're just his sailors on his pirate ship. But we got a good captain. And all the while, what, what, while Satan attempts his, his fight back, his, his blowback, our Lord just sits on his throne in the heavens like a holy pirate captain and laughs. Psalm 2, 1 through 6. Just laughs. Thus, thus we, 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 these verses are meant to create in us a, a sort of metaphorical cross-shaped Jolly Roger flag flying over our heads. Jolly Roger being the phrase that the English used for any pirate flag that, that, that would identify a pirate ship in battle. Um, and and it, should, it should create in us a, a jolly joy in us because as our ship's captain has told us, our weapons are not cannons or canceling people, but bread and wine and water, the gospel and and what Jesus says about the gospel is this in Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what, what are gates for? Are gates attacking weapons? Do you attack with gates? Do you pick up a fence and run with it into battle? No. No, gates are protective items. They protect you from attack. What Jesus is saying is the gospel, Peter, you just shared with me, not even the gates of hell will prevail against its attack, is what he's saying. The church, the, the, the local church is God's platoons bringing his weapons, but, but not the weapons of man, the, the, the ironically most humble weapons of, of bread and wine and water, of a body broken and blood spilled and, and the cleansing of water, of communion and baptism, those are our weapons. <laughs> and ironically, not even the gates of hell will stand before those weapons. <laughs> Again, this is, this is true. The question is, do we believe it? Do I believe it? Do I believe it? So, so then why? why? Why do we find such joy in such short supply amongst us, the, the larger evangelical church, and yes, here in Grace Church. Why is this jolly spirit in such short supply? And I, I include me in this. I, why, am, why is it in short supply with me? 
Why does it sometimes just like drop out? Um, so I'm going to share with you my own conclusions about myself as we go along, but, um, but we need to face the fact that never, never has a generation been richer than ours, and never has a generation been more not at ease than ours especially among younger people, that there's never been a generation. You, you have to go back to, to places like uh, the, the Nazi concentration camps to find places where there was psychological conditions like we experience today in the West. Anxiety, depression, uh, nihilism, um, just this, this pervading darkness. But the same is true among the older as well. So much, so much disillusionment and malaise. The question is why, and there are a thousand reasons. There's a thousand reasons, but I want to consider just three from this, these scripture passages. And the first is conversion. The first is conversion. The, the first reason why there are so many people in the West who are not at ease is because they are not converted to Christ. Outside the church and in the church. There are so many people that are not converted to Christ. We are not a Christian nation or generation. We're more like the generation that when, when they heard of the gospel in Acts 2.16, when, when they heard that uh, Jesus was risen and more than risen, that he was now ascended and reigning, they did not hear that as good news. They heard that as bad news. Why? Because they crucified him. That's really bad news when the person you crucified was risen from the dead and has now ascended on high and is now your Lord and judge. Bad news. Really bad news. And so they asked, with, with, with the blood draining out of their faces, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. So if, if you find the ascension and, the, the, and the, the soon return of Jesus not a, not a jolly thing, but a scary one, perhaps that's evidence that you too need to be converted. And it's, it's okay. Be converted. <laughs> Become a Christian. Act on that. Don't push it down. Act on it. Become a Christian. But, but let's be clear. What does repentance mean? Repentance means renouncing your old life to your old country and king. You know, think about the old pirate days. It means taking off the red coat and renouncing your, your commission as an officer in the, in the queen or, or king's navy, setting that down and joining in total allegiance to this pirate king, Jesus, which implies faith, a, a life of faith, trusting that your new captain will not lead you astray, even when times are hard. And it's in that, that repentance and that faith, it's, it's there at the intersection of those two, that you will find a joy that you have never known and that you will never know in your life otherwise. you find freedom, you'll find purpose, you will find a jolly joy. And and if you want to talk about that more, let's talk. You know, hit me up. Hit me up. Let's chat about it. I'm not a hard sell on just about anything. Let, let's, let's, let's shoot the breeze. Let's talk. Um, so first is conversion. Number two, community. Community. The second reason we do not possess this jolly spirit is that the American dream has gotten way in the way. The American dream has blessed us with so much 
but our, our blessings have done a really great job in isolating us from one another. Um, thus, it was so easy for us to do COVID. You know, stay home. Right, I already am. I already drive in into my driveway, into, into my garage, and then spend all my days isolated from all my neighbors anyway. You know, just put a mask on it now. I mean, the, the, there, there is America, and we, we, our blessings have done a great job of isolating us one from the other, and so have our philosophies of efficiency. In order to, say, efficiently minister to the youth, we say, okay, put all of them over there in, in that part of the factory, and the young marrieds over there, and the retired folks over there, and that's how we do it. We, we, we think oftentimes more with the mindset of Henry Ford than Jesus Christ. Henry Ford being the, the efficiency, the man who launched the efficiency revolution in the United States with his um, production lines and making cars. But in all the passages that we have con we've considered here, they are all delivered to a plural you. Not to you as an individual, but y'all. Y'all, the church. The church. Now, well, you say, well, I'm with other people. And I say, Who? And you say, well, you know, the five other couples that I get together with every Tuesday since, you know, for the last how many years? And while that's not bad, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not a, that, that's not a pirate ship, that's a club. Um, and that breaks, down, that, that breaks down coffee and cookies. It doesn't break down the, the gates of hell. We, th th this is a pirate ship kind of community, a holy one, a holy one. Um, we're all in this on the same boat together. Okay, so first, conversion. Secondly, community. And thirdly, our commitments. And by this, I mean theological commitments, what we believe about God. And this, I believe, is the most fundamental. How we hold our theological commitments has led us to be a most pessimistic generation. We say that we're optimists, but I, I don't think we are. And, and right here, I, I find myself convicted in, in several ways here. Um, there's, as in so many areas, there's two ditches here. The left ditch is that we have the correct theological convictions, but we do not possess the commitment to them to allow them to shape our day-to-day -day lives when we face challenges or when we're just doing our daily to-do list. We do not allow our theological commitments to, to shape our countenances and to shape our outlook on life. But I'm convinced that as we look at the scriptures, our countenance should be fundamentally one of optimism. One of optimism. One of a jolly, a, a jolly um, anticipation of what God is going to do. And I think the reason why we don't have that, is that as I look into myself, it's that in some ways, yes, I have, but in other ways, I, I say, God, help me, I, that I haven't humbled myself and submitted myself in every way under the, under the promises of God to allow them to shape my countenance as I face my world on Monday morning. Maybe that's you too. And so, so often, so daily, hourly, our sin, our greatest sin is that we do not, James 1, 2, consider it all joy when we face trials of various kinds because we're letting our circumstances define our countenance instead of the word of God, instead of his promises. We're walking by sight and not by faith. But the other ditch is this, that, that we have determined, we have determined that, that everything must go well. 
We're Americans after all. Everything's supposed to go right for us, right? The economy's always supposed to go like this. My housing value's always supposed to go like this. Of course, not in Elk Grove, not in California, but it's always supposed to go like this. My job is always supposed to go like, you know, everything is supposed to go like this. Um, So when it doesn't, when it doesn't, what we do is we retreat to a partial, incomplete theology that allows us to say, well, I guess everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And I guess I'm just going to do this and ride it out to the very bottom. And hey, at least God's going to pluck me out of the fire before it really gets bad. But that does not resemble a jolly pirate ship kind of joy. That, that does not resemble a, a, a pirate ship going into battle. That more resembles a group of soldiers who have retreated from the war and are huddled up in a cave. So, we, we, have, our, we, have, our, we have our work to do. We, we have our work to do regarding conversion. We have our work to do regarding community and regarding how we hold our theological commitments. So, so what shall we do? Well, here's, here are some practical applications. I think there's five of these. Number one, a focus on conversion. I say this again because the engine of the church's jolly spirit, this jolly pirate attitude, is the gospel. The gospel and the whole gospel. Not, not just the gospel as a get-out-of-jail-free card. But the gospel that says your captain is ascended and reigning now for you. He's ascended and he is reigning. And he himself is plundering the Lord of this world's castle. And he's doing it all day long, 24-7, 365. All the time. This is why, by the way, we'll be having a feast in the near future on Wednesday night simply to celebrate the ascension. Simply to have a party celebrating our captain's ascension to his throne like a bunch of jolly holy pirates. But I say focus on conversion first. Focus focus on conversion first for joy. For joy. Paul in 2 Corinthians could, could describe his whole ministry as serving for their joy. So think about conversion first with yourself. Be converted. Become a Christian if you're not but with others too. I, my next sentence here, I'm not thinking of anybody. I'm not thinking of any group here, but, but I, I, I could say this to any church in America, okay? So I'm not thinking of anyone in particular here. But maybe, maybe the reason your small group has no jolly spirit like this is that half the people in your group are not actually converted. That's a possibility. It's possible to be in church for one year, two years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and not be, not be a Christian. That's possible. Love your neighbor. Focus on their conversion. Make the gospel ground zero of everything you do. Make the gospel the ground zero of everything you do so, so that, so that w- w- whether it's preaching a sermon or whether when no one is looking, you're in the nursery trying to fix the baby high chair in there. It's, it's all done with joy. It's all, it's all done with a, with a holy joy. And that joy brings glory to God in all of it. And not only that, it, it's winsome to the world. It's winsome to others. It draws others to the person that they need most, which is God. So focus, focus, make, make, the gospel ground zero of everything you do. And number two, and, and this one I struggle with how to put put words to it, 
because I think I'm preaching very close to my own lessons here. Um, but I, I put it this way. Let your theology, not your circumstances, govern your countenance. Let your theology, not your circumstances, govern your countenance. And under the word let here is humility and the hard work of faith. The hard work of faith. It's hard work to confront that inner pessimism and the, and the pessimistic residue that, you know, you, you spend all night watching Tucker Carlson or Joe Scarborough, you know, whichever flag you fly, and, you know, and it's, it's hard not to walk away from that just feeling totally pessimistic. Right. That was the point. You realize that, right? That was the point, to, to leave you feeling pessimistic and angry, to let, leave you feeling joyless. Either way, either way. Um, and so, but the, the truth is, and, and that the hard work of faith here is, is taking the, the truths of Scripture and reapplying them to ourselves. And that's hard to, to confront those, those inner pessimisms that we have. It's hard to undo how we've been shaped, but we must do it. We must do it. We must preach to ourselves that you are no longer a Republican or a Democrat, no longer a conservative or a leftist. You are now member, you are now a, a vital member of Christ's crew going wherever he takes the ship. I don't know any other way to develop this outlook than for, for me, I, you know, you might have a better way, okay? So if you've got a better way, let me know. I don't know any better way to fight that inner pessimism than to get up a little earlier and read my Bible and to read my Bible cover to cover. N not on one day, not on one morning, but, but um, because from Adam onward, from Adam onward, God has been making promises and keeping them. And I, I, just, I, I need God's forgiveness for all the, all the ways that I've taken them so lightly. I have not applied them to my own inner pessimisms because he makes promises to us. He's been making promises and keeping them and making them and keeping them. And now we, we sit under in this age the greatest promise that God will soon crush Satan himself under your feet. That's my promise and yours. And, it, and it's, meant, it's meant for you and I to, to bank on that promise tomorrow at 7.37 a.m. on March 27, 2022, Monday morning, 23rd. It's the first time I've done that. Yeah. So this is theology. Theology is not meant to be left up here. It's meant to be taken down and then applied in here, here, which is the work of faith. It's hard work. It's hard, it's hard work. Okay, what did you expect? <laughs> it's a fallen world. Um, it's much easier to wake up and look at the headlines and look at porn or sports scores or whatever, and that's a very easy, wide path to go down. Very wide path, as Jesus said, the wide path, the wide path to hell. That's, it's a wide path is very easy, very easy. The path of discipleship is very narrow. It takes effort, but that's why we need his promises for the joy set before us that we might endure and endure and not just endure, but endure with a jolly spirit. Endure the jolly spirit. So, number one, um, number one is uh, focus on conversion. Number two is let your theology, not your circumstances, govern your countenance. Number three is this: be killing sin, or it will be killing you. 
be killing sinner, it will be killing you. That phrase was written by the greatest mind of the Puritan generation, John Owen. And he wrote that in like the middle 1500s or something. But it's still true today. Be killing sinner, it'll be killing you. So, Christian, you realize, right, that Satan's game plan to get you to sin is not really the sin itself, right? You want, do you get that? His game plan in getting you to sin is that your joy in the Lord would become misplaced on a, on a lesser object, one way or the other. I mean, it might be on the object itself, or it might be that after you've indulged in, in that lesser joy that you feel so guilty and ashamed that you go hide in the bushes over here, and either way, the joy of the Lord is not your strength. You're separated from the joy of the Lord. And either way, Satan's fine. It doesn't matter. So that's what he's up to. That's what he's up to. Um, so this is why David repeats himself in his great psalm of contrition, Psalm 51. He repeats himself on one thing, one thing, and that is joy. Joy. Psalm 51.8, let me hear joy and gladness again, O Lord. Or Psalm 51.12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He could see that his sin had swindled him out of his most prized possession, his joy in God. So, like Samson and with Delilah, sin aims to do the same thing with us, to sneak in and cut off the thing which gives us all of our strength. Strength sufficient to destroy entire armies. So both Samson and David could repent by God's grace, and God's grace is available to you and I today. But, but it can be painful. For Samson, it just meant the last moments of his life. But praise God, Samson went out like a stud. <laughs> Samson went out like a jolly pirate. He got it done. So be killing sin or it'll be killing you and it'll be killing your greatest strength. Your greatest strength is your joy and the Lord and nothing can stand before that power. Nothing. Church. So take yourself in hand. Take yourself at hand. Pull, pull yourself up by your own lapels and put a sword through that thing, whatever it is that's been swindling your joy from you, whatever that sin is. You know, you've been, you've been, you've been fiddling with that, that, that sin that's just kind of sitting over there. It's, it's like a pet. You can't, you can't bring yourself to get rid of it because it looks at you with those eyes. And God says, no, be killing sinner. It'll be killing you. Either gouge out the eye or cut off the hand or do something else less extreme but equally effective. If it looks or feels weird, congratulations, you're probably doing it right. It only looks and feels weird because the rest of the world is designed to make you float down that wide stream in the opposite direction. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Okay, number four, become a crew member, not just a passenger. Become a crew member of Jesus' jolly pirate ship, not just a passenger. One of the reasons you are joyless or someone else here is joyless, is that the two of you never connect. 
But God has so designed his people that if you are in Christ, then you are in his body, and God has placed significant, significant spiritual nutrients over here that are needed over here for this one's joy. Pastors are meant to serve for your joy only as examples to the rest of the flock because the rest of the flock are to serve one another for each other's joy. If you are in Christ, you are his body and you need each other for significant spiritual nutrients. And note that that person may not be in your geographic neighborhood or even in your stage of life. You might be 80 and that person that you need might be 30 or vice versa. So what I, what I commend to you very practically here is, is an outside-in approach to Sunday, outside-in. Prioritize first connecting with those people that you don't know very well. Seriously, let, let's all decide right now. We all give each other permission to walk right by the person that you do know well. And in the most holy fashion, just ignore them. <laughs> at the beginning of church. Outside-in, catch them at the end. It's fine. It's cool. It's great. Just, um, so do, do this because, because, and, and, and you, you may not think of what much of what God has given you, but I'm telling you, there are significant spiritual nutrients that someone else here needs and, and God's already put it in you. I've already said that. Okay. Lastly, number five, pursue the triune God, not joy itself. Pursue the triune God, not joy itself. C.S. Lewis once said that if you pursue joy as its own end, you will never find it, but you will end up in a dry, desiccated existence. But if you pursue God, then you'll not only find joy, you'll find all the rest, everything else you're looking for as well. Pursue God above all else. And when we pursue him, we find that he is a triune God. He is a triune God. He is not just the Father who is the standard of perfection. He is also the son who enters our world, who understands how joy can look. Jesus Jesus understands better than anyone what joy can look like in the most awful circumstances. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. When when it was as if great uh, drops of blood were sweating out of his body. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured that. He endured with joy. Joy doesn't always look like happy, happy, woohoo. But nevertheless, it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And Jesus knows that better than anyone. So yes, we, we worship a God who is, who is perfect in, in his joy in himself. But we also worship a God who has come near to us in the flesh and walked in our own sandals and entered into our fray with us. Oh, he knows, he knows what joy looks like in the most awful circumstances, and he has given us his spirit to unite us both to his perfect joy and, and the joy that, that can happen in the darkest night of your soul. He's given us himself in, in a triune form that he might meet with us and connect with us perfectly. So even, even in our most difficult trials and seasons, the spirit is still with us, connecting us to God And so our joy, it need not be perfect. It need not be perfect. Sometimes it looks gritty. Sometimes it looks weird. Sometimes we we wonder, am I just faking it until I make it? It's not always going to look the same, but it need only be flowing out of him, and then it will be enough. Pursue God 
above all else, pursue the triune God, not joy itself, and then you will have joy. You will have this jolly pirate joy that indeed overcomes the world, that God promises will overcome the world. And then we will endure to the end. We will endure to the end with a jolly joy. So let, me, let me pray for that right now. Oh God, I, I want to pray now and I want to pray for all of us. I put myself first in the sense of my need. I believe, but help my unbelief. I, I believe in the things that I've preached, but help my unbelief. And do the same for all the rest of us. Create much new glory in us and through us by creating much new joy in us. Give us a jolly pirate-like spirit, a great confidence in you, in your promises, in you, our glorious and all-powerful captain. Just thank you that it's you. Thank you that you're so good to us, that you are so faithful. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Receive the benediction. Christian, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength, and it is an incredible power. It is your superpower. So go pursuing him, killing everything that gets in its way, in your way, every sin that gets in your way. Go pursuing him, and you will discover the greatest joy you've ever known. Amen. Go in his peace.